Hello, and thank you for listening. I'm Jay Lemons. Welcome to Leaders on Leadership, brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. The purpose of our podcast is to share the stories of the people and forces that have shaped leaders in higher education and to learn more about their thoughts on leadership in the academy. It is a special pleasure today to ask to join us Dr. Cynthia Tentiente Matson. Cynthia is an internationally recognized Latina leader. She's known for championing student success, diversity, equity, inclusion, civic engagement, experiential learning, and she is a financial expert to be certain as well. More about that in a, in a moment. In January 2023, Cynthia was called to join and serve as the 31st president at San Jose State University. Before coming to San Jose State, Cynthia led Texas A&M University San Antonio from 2015 to 2023. In her time in San Antonio, a very generative and productive time, she helped grow the campus into a comprehensive master's institution and earned designation as a Hispanic-serving institution by the Department of Education. Cynthia is a renowned public speaker, much in demand, has delivered a number of keynotes at national conferences around contemporary issues in higher education, risk management, women's leadership, and Latinx leadership. Cynthia earned her Bachelor of Arts in Management from the University of Alaska Fairbanks, her Master of Business Administration from the University of Alaska Anchorage, and her Doctorate in Educational Leadership from Cal State Fresno. She serves on many, many, many boards, and I'm actually very happy to say that she serves both on the boards of Academic Search and our parent organization, the American Academic Leadership Institute. Cynthia, it is a great pleasure to welcome you, and I'm grateful for your willingness to share this time and for all you do for all of us in higher education. Thank you. It's great to be here, Jay. We're going to just jump right on in here. As, uh, as our listeners know, one of one of our goals here is to really ask leaders to reflect and to share a little bit about their own pathways, the important milestones and people who helped to shape you and help forge you into the exceptional leader that you are um, as your journey unfolded. And I'd like to just ask you to uh, begin right there and talk about, um, you know, I was not aware that you did your formal education at the undergraduate and master's level in Alaska. So yeah, yeah talk about your background. Uh, so I'm a first generation college graduate and a first generation professional. And uh, my, my journey starts, you know, my grandparents migrated from Mexico into South Texas, and that's where they landed uh, on both sides of my family, on my mother's side and my dad's side. Uh, both my parents were born in San Antonio, and uh, so was I. Um, neither of my parents had an opportunity to go to college, um, and so they very much understood and imparted on me and my sister the importance of hard work and really valuing uh, college education. So I'd always known I was going to college. I just really didn't know what that was all about. I think as, as they were examining their life and trying to create a better life for our family, um, they felt that they needed to not only leave their home neighborhood, which is a very low-income neighborhood, um, but they left the state. And they did what many Latinos of that generation did, and they followed a sibling um, to Southern California. 
And that's how I got to California as a child. Uh, during that time, my dad was able to earn a credential um, that took him into the trades and crafts and moved us to Alaska. And uh, it was, you know, for them, a, a tremendous opportunity um, to change their pathway and move them into the middle class. And because of that, I was able to go to college. And as a first-generation Latina, it was important to my parents that I was somewhat close to home. And close to home was still, we were uh, living on Naval Air Station, ADAC, Alaska. It's a very remote location. And uh, living close to home was, you know, 1,200 miles away um, at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks. And it was the only campus in the state of Alaska that had residence halls or, or dorm where I could live. So that's how I ended up at uh, and stayed in Alaska really for close to 25 years and how I got my start in higher education. Uh, after graduating there with my undergraduate, I began uh, working in higher ed administration as, it, as in uh, procurement and contracts and worked my way up there and moved to Anchorage where I uh, worked and earned my MBA. And that's where I became a vice chancellor for administrative services. Uh, working at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And that system at the time that I was there was a combination of the public four-year universities and the community college systems. At the, the time that I was there, there were no doctoral level programs. So when I became a vice chancellor there, I was one of the youngest vice chancellors they'd had, particularly in administration, um, with my background in business, uh, both the undergrad and the MBA level, I moved around from procurement. I did auxiliaries. Um, I oversaw facilities. Um, so I had held multiple jobs within the divisions before becoming a um, vice chancellor's system that they had there. And uh, it was really a special time because when I earned my MBA, um, I, you know, got the shoulder tap, so to speak, about considering an opportunity as an associate vice chancellor in budget and finance. And so that's really what took me into that area. Although I am not an accountant, um, I very much learned and understand accounting principles. I obviously understand budgeting and finance. And those are actually one of the hardest jobs I ever had was being associate vice chancellor for budget and finance, because these are very technical roles where you have to really have competency and proficiency in those areas. And those were things I learned along the way. Um, so I had a great experience here. I became a vice chancellor. Unexpectedly, I would add that, um, you know, when you talk about leadership, Jay, you never know where your journey is going to take you. And I was delighted to be an associate vice chancellor. And my boss, who was the vice chancellor, was killed in a plane accident. And you know, they did a national search for the position. Um, I was not a candidate. Again, I got a shoulder tap and uh, after like their first round of interviews or something like that. And, you know, just a suggestion that maybe I ought to consider applying. Um, so I applied and was uh, selected as vice chancellor for admin finance. And so, you know, no, nobody in, in no matter where you live, there's no kindergartner sitting at home wishing that they would become, you know, an AVP <laughs> or an associate vice chancellor in budget and finance and, and these hierarchies that that we have. And that's really what what took me into that very first leadership journey at the University of Alaska. Wow. I want to go back and, and just take stock. The very remote naval base where your family was living is 1,200 miles 
1,200 miles, you said, from Fairbanks. By plane, because you you couldn't get there. And, you know, it's an island on the tip of the Aleutian chain. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that, that just speaks to the vastness of Alaska, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does. You know, the, the I've learned known for a long time, you know, the challenges of these very uh, diverse geographies and how mm-hmm. you provide educational services for those. And I was fortunate that my family could send me to college. Um, had that not been the case, I really wouldn't have had uh, very many options to, you know, what students do now, which is live at home and, and go to campus. That that would not have been an option for me. So I think, you know, very much understanding the multi-dimensional elements of how people make decisions that are very much influenced by their familial conditions, particularly in the Latino community. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I associate the tight-knit family structures. Um, that was a big leap of faith by your parents. Oh, yes. Uh, You know, uh, it's really and it came full circle for me, um, Jay, because um, as a vice chancellor, you have a very as a vice chancellor or vice president uh, at those levels, you're working very closely with your boss, whether that's the president or a chancellor. And as you well know, those relationships are really critical for success. And I was really fortunate to have a wonderful uh, first chancellor, so to speak, in my first vice chancellorship. Not only did it believe in me and selected me for the role, he was an economist. So he was really almost ahead of his time in terms of data, uh, data-driven decision-making, you know, back in the, the 90s. So to speak, yeah. um, and and really forward looking and moving quickly. So I had an opportunity to really develop a lot of skills and fundamental leadership traits that I learned from him and with him. When he decided to retire, um, I was really confronted with: Do I want to stay here for the rest of my career, um, or do I I want to look elsewhere? And as it just so happened, uh, California State University at Fresno was hiring. I, I received a call from uh, a, a recruiter, uh, went through the process, and was really um, impressed with uh, Dr. John Welty, who was my boss at Fresno State, and and the CSU system, the California State University system. And so I had a, you know, as a leader and then as a working professional, as a mother, as a spouse, it's really important then you begin to realize that decisions aren't all just about what's right for you. It's about what's right for your family. So I had a a pretty clear sense of what I was looking for in a position, what I was looking for in a boss, what I was looking for in a community. And uh, that everything just lined up for my ability to be at at uh, Fresno State with Dr. Wel- uh, Dr. Welty. And, uh, you know, I crossed some really important family boundaries there that also taught me some things about how to negotiate. Um, I accepted that job um, in July at a Nakubo meeting. I remember it uh, clearly. I was at the Gaylord Hotel when I got the call. And I was really on the verge because my son, uh, who was I think 14 or 15 at the time, must have been around 15. Um, when you live in Alaska, you play hockey. So my son was a hockey player and he had made the varsity team. 
and wow. really wanted to stay as a freshman um, and and play high school hockey. You can, might imagine there was not much high school hockey in Fresno, California. Um, so I call, I talked to Dr. Welty before I signed my appointment letter, and I said, um, "It's really important to me that um, my son be able to to do this. Um, so can I start in March?" Um, and so uh, he said yes. And I didn't negotiate on anything else. It was just really important to me to to be able to do this piece for my family because we were uprooting their their lives. And then my younger son was in a Spanish immersion program. Hmm. And I, when I came for the interview with Dr. Welty, I, I said to him, if I can't, find, it was really important to me in terms of understanding your values and what you're looking for. Um, my Spanish is okay. It's mostly Spanglish. So it was really important to me, having lived in Alaska, that um, and being removed from really Latino culture, that my children, well, my youngest son, learned to speak Spanish. Our older son doesn't speak Spanish. Um, so, but he was in a Spanish immersion program. And it was really important to us. So Dr. Welty helped me uh, look at the schools during my interview process um, to evaluate the the. Um, programs there that might fit this criteria. And I had had jokingly said, you know, if if, if the job doesn't have these two elements in the community, then I, I won't be able to come um, for the job. And so I think it, for me, as, uh, as I was mentioning, as a working parent, it, it also helps me to be empathetic to the needs of others who are facing these sorts of career decisions as a leader. Yeah. And uh, I, I was very, um, inspired by Dr. Welty. And I was very, you know, as we mentioned earlier, th these are tough jobs. Um, and that relationship is really important. And I had a strong professional relationship with Dr. Welty and I still do. Well, I, I uh, Cynthia, as a young ASCII president, man, I just looked up to, uh, to John Welty um, and I can only appreciate, and I love hearing that in, in some ways, I guess I will say it this way. John might have been the caricature, or if you were central casting, he's who I might have cast historically as a college president, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm mindful of the great work of Estella Bensimon mm -hmm. and the work that she did this past year. Um, we have been really studying and making sense of, and she says that it, that, that is uh, a John or myself or those historic caricatures. I love you are representing what I hope might be a new caricature. And I'd love to hear um, if you have any reflections on, I'm, 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 I'm just curious, did John tap you on the shoulder to use that phrase yet again and say, Cynthia, you need to think about something else. And we need more um, women coming up through the unequivocally, you know, I, I said to you, I started in March um, and I was I started. Um, I, I remember this vividly. I started March 29th because Cesar Chavez uh, Day was that week and I didn't want to start on April Fool's Day. So I started in March. My first performance review was in June, was just, you know, 90 days into the job. And in my goals, the top goal was must earn doctorate. And it stayed in my performance review every year until I enrolled in a, in, in a program and completed. Um, and so he really 
pushed me. I mean, as a vice president, yeah. uh, uh, having an MBA is a terminal degree in that sort of a job, or at least it was at the time. Yeah. More, obviously more and more, and we know this, I mean, I've, I've studied this this particular data more, more um, CFOs and chief business officers are coming in with, with doctorates or earning doctorates along the way, particularly from communities of color. But he was ahead of his time in, in inspiring me to do that. And so every year, and, and it was it sat there, and like I said, until I started. So I started working for him in 2004, and I graduated in 2013 with my doctorate. Um, so actually, uh, he put that idea in my head and really worked with me on it. And yes, after I received the doctorate, um, he suggested to me that I register for the um, Executive Leadership Academy, the ELA. So I was in the ELA um, at that time, and he was my sponsor and my mentor and helped me uh, through that process. And, uh, you know, to, to diversify my capabilities to be prepared to be a university president. So when I was nominated for the presidency at Texas A&M University, San Antonio, and accept, you know, accepted that role, I went back to the exact same neighborhood and zip code that my parents worked so hard to get out of. Wow. So it was a really uh, full circle uh, moment in memory um, and the leadership uh, expiration, I would say, in my first presidency in my time there really learning not only about myself as a leader, but about the students that we served and the backgrounds and really had a deeper appreciation for what I call the zip code lottery. Um, you know, I, I heard that phrase from Warren Buffett, the, the, the zip code lottery. Yeah. Had I stayed in that zip code, the, the, the data is still true. Had I stayed in that zip code, I might not have graduated from high school. I would have had a higher probability to be a teen mother, probably would not have gone on to college, and my life expectancy would be reduced by 10 years. So there's there's a lot of um, those moments along my leadership journey that have inspired me to really understand more about communities of color and uh, first-generation college experiences. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. I, I uh, Even with people whom I've known a number of years and had the privilege of working with, I find in these conversations, I learned so much more. And, and I really appreciate your, your sharing. And you, know, you said earlier that you think that some of those experiences um, have made you a more empathetic leader. And I'd, I'd love to hear you maybe talk a little bit more about what makes a good leader. And, and I use good in the Anne Hasselmoe sense of meaning virtuous, um, not grade B, but um, effective, successful, but at the end of the day, um, filled with virtue. So Talk a little bit about those qualities and for you. So I think it's really important to be able to create the vision, uh, to really uh, set the that visionary, um, forward-looking viewpoint, perspective, landscape that others that you work with uh, around you and uh, throughout the organization can understand and follow. It's really important that we be, I think, as inspirational as possible and 
have clarity, clarity of purpose for yourself as an individual and for your institution. Right now, today, I think it's also, it, this has always been true, but acting with integrity, I think as, as we have lived through the, the last few years of the pandemic, post-pandemic, um, political dynamics, geopolitical dynamics, um, acting with integrity is, is really critical. I think when you're in these roles, once you become grounded and established as a, as a leader at this level, at the executive level, I have found it important to have focus and to really stay focused on what you're trying to accomplish in the long run. Because there's a lot that comes at you on a daily basis that you have to have the mental capacity to evaluate uh, what's important or where you're going to place your energy. Some things will pop up that take you off track and you have to be able to recognize that and get yourself and your institution on track and stay on track. So I think um, when I worked for Lee Gorsuch, he used to say, never underestimate the vision thing. And I think uh, that that sort of phrase has always stuck with me, never underestimate the vision thing, because it is really clear. And then consistency, 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 um, repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, and so I, I think those are some of the things that I think make an effective CEO and president. There's many other elements, but those are amongst the top. And that's really what I'm aiming at. I, I so appreciate that. And I worked with a group of colleagues once who um, had a way of dealing with the uh, uh, the problem of the shiny object, um, you know, because we have shiny objects thrown in our footpath all the time and they can take away from that focus. And it was somebody would yell squirrel <laughs> <laughs> and to bring us back to focus wow. because in a world with um, many, many options, you can um, you can lose sight. You know, many, many public universities are the size of small, medium, or large cities, depending on the size and scale of your operation and institution. So there is a lot of what I call just the business of running the university mm -hmm. that, uh, to your point about um, how do you evaluate some things that you have to do? You know, if we have to upgrade the payroll system or we have to make sure the electricity stays on, we have to make sure we have the most current uh, tech, computer technology of the day, but that cannot be your long-term strategy. And so how you balance all of those elements to, to your point, uh, I, I love that analysis of just somebody yelling squirrel or what, whatever it may be, I think is is critical as it for you as a leader, but amongst your team. Yep, that, that's exactly right. Well, speaking of teams, when you are building, creating your team, what are you looking for in the leaders that you invite to be a part of that? And I am a huge believer, and it goes back to Ed Penson and, and John Moore and the president and the presidency. And the presidency is far more important, and the team is one of those major strands that helps to define the strength of, of, of a presidential um, tenure. So when you're building your team, what are you looking for in those people? Well, first, I always look for operational mastery. Um, you know, the world is changing very quickly. And so 
Um, and it, it, there's in a public university setting, there's a lot of regulatory compliance elements, as well as what we were talking about earlier, envisioning and really even future casting. So you need, I believe, I need people around me who are operational masters. They're highly effective in whatever that um, space is and their sphere of influence that they, people look to them as knowledgeable experts and leaders in that space. So I think that's number one. And that just goes without saying. I, so for the team, then I also look for individuals who have integrity, who we can build trust with, who have um, strong communication skills, who have the ability to say, squirrel, to use your analysis, or stop, that um, yeah. this, this is not a good thing to really own their voice, own their, you know, you call this the truth to power, but really also to share that voice and that vision because you cannot be an effective team if we don't hear from everyone. I also think it's important to find people that don't necessarily think like you do. So you want to have that diversity uh, in so many areas. It's not just about gender or ethnicity or race or political as in your viewpoints. It is really also about all of that makes a diversity of voice, which helps to build a strong team and a strong cabinet um, as we move forward. So those are amongst probably the, the top list. There's many others in terms of how the team behaves, how you create a shared purpose and a common vision um, to ensure that we're acting effectively. Excellent. Thank you. Cynthia, uh, I don't know, you were among probably the earliest participants in the AALI programs. Um, and ELA, you mentioned, and of course, there's BAPA and SLA and Mastering the Presidential Search Process. Um, I, I, I always have those folks who have been identified, if you will, they've gotten the early tap. You should be thinking about something um, beyond what you're doing as a part of our audience. And I really treasure what advice you might have to share with those leaders as they think about the possibility of leadership in the academy. I often say to uh, professionals, stretch yourself. Uh, it's in the academy, particularly if you're coming up through the faculty ranks. I think this is true in administration too, because I was an administrator, but we, the academy is very focused in our lanes. And if you're, you know, a biologist, all of your work is in and around that academic discipline. So it's important to find opportunities to experience other parts of the academy, other parts of the university. Um, I think that same thing holds true for staff, that we have to see ourselves in other roles. And we do that best, I believe, in committees, in joining committees that are outside of areas of expertise in areas that are of interest to you. So I enc always encourage people to stretch themselves, Wonderful. get on committees, look at other avenues, other opportunities, and then to remember that the academy needs leadership and to really challenge people to say, have you ever thought about leadership? Have you ever thought about the leadership roles? Have you thought about becoming a department chair or division manager or um, some other specialist across the university? And, and I always encourage, particularly women and women of color, 
ask for what you need to be successful. Mm. Um, but to do that in a context of what helps the institution. So to put yourself in that lane and then figure out what it is. So some of the examples are some of the programs you named, you know, ask to be participating in certain training programs, ask to be, uh, have a release for a special assignment, offer to do something that's outside of your scope, but also ask for the tools you need to be successful, uh, whatever that looks like um, for you. Sometimes it may be a leave of absence. Sometimes it might be a fellowship. Sometimes it it might be a special assignment, um, you know, leading an initiative for a cabinet member. There's just lots of ways to do that. But I don't think we, th- we inherently think about that. Um, another phrase I use with young professionals is to think inside the box. And by that, I mean, look at existing leadership programs that are at your campus now. Mm -hmm. And have you taken advantage of what is being created already? Because we know across public universities, many uh, human human resources departments, organizational dynamics, organizational excellence divisions, excuse me, um, are creating programs, creating content to help create leaders. And then we find that the classes aren't full or people sign up and then they don't show up because they feel like they can't leave their desk for whatever important and urgent assignment cross that way at that time. So sometimes this is not all, this is not universally true, but often there are programs on the campus of which you could grow and benefit and learn, um, but people don't take advantage of them. So a number of things there. That's Stretch yourself. Excellent. Yeah. Um, look for opportunities. Think inside the box. Ask for what you need to be successful. It, it's so interesting um, in many ways. And you used the word specialist a, a, a couple moments ago. Um, we are trained to become specialists and then hyper specialists. We're trained in some ways, especially as people come through the faculty ranks. It's not just, you know, it's not biology, it's chunks of biology that get narrower and narrower. And yet the needs for institutional leadership are almost, um, uh, you you back out and and become, as a president, I don't know how you feel. Uh, I remember feeling like, man, I am am a generalist at this point. Now you will never leave your um, extraordinary expertise in in finances behind, but uh, we really are, as as presidents, you have to be a generalist too. Well, yeah, as president, you have to be generalist. I mean, you know, as president, you're responsible for everything that happens, every word that is spoken and every across every square inch of the institution, whether you know about it or not. And so the ability to navigate and move quickly as a generalist, and that's why this team element is so important, because you're relying on those experts to act in the best way possible for the institution when you're not there, even when you are there, but when you're not there. Um, And that's, you know, that's daunting, I think, for what I hear from in in those academies where we're teaching people to move to the next level it's it's overwhelmingly daunting and scary and we need to make it more um, accessible and understandable and learn really what those roles are so that you can see yourself in it and practice in those going forward yeah uh, thank you i'm going to move us forward because i um 
I am so grateful for your finding and making time on, I know, a busy uh, piece in your schedule. I want to kind of move into the lightning round here. Okay. So shorter questions. The answers can be as long as you want. Who's had the most influence on you? And you can name more than one person. Well, most first and foremost, my mom. Um, and so uh, anyway, my mom is someone that I, I look up to, uh, a person who really taught me the importance of hard work, um, lots of life lessons um, and experiences in always pushing yourself and making the world better for others. Those are things I learned from my mom. Do you still um, have her? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Ah. Um, my dad is now deceased. We lost him during the pandemic. And so I reflect on, you know, a lot of these um, types of experiences. So those for those of you who still have your parents, be thankful. Amen to that. Well, I can only imagine the extraordinary pride your parents must have felt um, watching you take up leadership in the town in which they emigrated to. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, it was very hard to leave and to to join San Jose State um, University. So when you asked me about people who influenced me, um, obviously, I named a few of my bosses who I've learned a lot from. Lee Gorsuch, my first yeah. boss at the University of Alaska in Anchorage when I became a vice chancellor. Um, John Welty, who I still have uh, the utmost respect, look to think about him a lot and in, in how he made decisions during his time and tenure. Um, I've admired uh, and always appreciated Jolene Kester. Um, oh. Jolene is, is an amazing person and giant reasons that I'm, I'm back in the California State University system. Um, I look to people like Ruth Simmons, who I met when mm -hmm. I was at AM. and um, She was a person, again, from afar that has had this incredible career faced very difficult decisions and is just a role model for so many people not only in the yeah. african-american community but in other communities as well for her extraordinary accomplishments so those are amongst the a few i could probably come up with others but the few that come, come to mind amazing that's that's great thank you about a, a book or books that have had great influence on you? You know, early in my leadership, um, actually, when I worked for Lee Gorsuch, uh, one of the, his leadership tactics, which was a good one, we would read books as a cabinet, um, and then we would discuss them. I don't know that very many leaders do that anymore because of everyone's extraordinarily busy schedule. But um, I really came to appreciate good to great. Um, and learned a lot about leadership there that still holds true. And so a lot of those metaphors, you know, we use them. They've become vernacular. They right? do. And you talked right about focus. I thought hedgehog yeah. immediately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, right people on the bus, yeah. level five performance, all, all of yeah. those. So uh, I'm a real fan of good to great. I also was a real fan of Clay, uh, Clay Christensen's work mm -hmm. because he really, uh, you know, put so much into space, uh, uh, into existence about disruption yeah. and really was predicting how to think about being a leader in higher ed, how higher ed was going to and continues to be disruptive and what that means for our future. So he wrote many pieces that I really appreciate um, in Harvard Business Review about yourself and your own leadership values. But, but the 
pieces he wrote about disruption and disrupt uh, being a disruptor, I think are really important leadership lessons for all of us, and they still resonate today. They do. Thank you for for that. And and I mean, I also love and you reference this. How will you measure your life? That sort of this yeah. final lecture um, uh, is just yeah. a beautiful challenge to everyone. Yeah, yeah. You know, I find sometimes when I find myself in a bad headspace or something where I just need clarity, reading some of his work, that article in particular just referenced, um, is a good one to go back and, and it gives you pause and it helps lift yourself back up. I mean, no one leads a perfect life and no one leads a perfect leadership. Uh, that is so valuable. Um, yes, I'm. I I look at you and I think I. I it's hard for me to imagine you having a bad head, uh, a bad, uh, a bad uh, yeah. patch. Um, um, but we all mm-hmm. have them. Um, we all have them. How about a fondest memory of your undergraduate experience? Well, I would say um, I really love living in the college residence halls um, as an undergraduate. Freshman, I lived on campus. I think I lived on campus for a few years. I lived on campus. Um, Living in Fairbanks, Alaska, living in very cold weather, um, you know, people would tell stories about don't go out with wet hair because your hair will break off, kind of things if it freezes. So there's, (laughs) I was at the University of Alaska doing very cold weather, uh, weather periods. And so um, living in the hall and, and just, having that common experience with others in thing in new experiences that I had never tried before or participated in before was very special. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a favorite campus tradition at a place that you've attended or served that you hold dear? So when I was at Texas A&M University in San Antonio, uh, we were building a university and I was fortunate to be president when we were welcoming our first freshman. Uh, class uh, in 2016. And as you know, um, or as you may know, because we talked about this a little offline, uh, Texas A&M is filled with traditions. And so at Texas A&M San Antonio, we were able to, with that spirit, create a lot of long-lasting traditions. But one of them uh, was called the Jaguar March. And it was uh, at the end, the culmination of um, the freshman orientation experiences, but these were right before they're coming to campus. So the freshman onboarding in a few days before we called it, um, uh, you know, Jaguar Camp Nation. JAGX is actually what we called it, JAGX, for the experience. And we would, um, the students would um, culminate at the, what was known as, it is still known as the Tower, the Tower of Esperanza. And it was a mile from the Tower to the Texas A&M San Antonio Fountain. Mm. And the freshman class would march together. This was at the end of their JAGX experience and be presented to the faculty. So it was leading into a convocation sort of experience of preparing them to be uh, college students and the readiness for to be a college student. And they would receive a mini keychain that was a ring, a mini class ring uh-huh. to remind that they would know that they that they would stay together as a class and that they would earn their their ring, their college ring, their AM San Antonio ring. But it's really powerful to be with that large group of uh, first-year students and be part of something that's bigger than yourself and to know that you're here together to get through the journey together. So I I helped to put that 
tradition in place and it, knowing that it's going to be there uh, continues is really special. Uh, thank you for sharing. Um, I, uh, I I would you know commend the work of Ernest Boyer um, and his notion about what defines a collegiate community, the place of ritual and tradition. And um, I'll, I'll acknowledge, Cynthia, that yes, my three years at Texas A&M <laughs> made me a great appreciator of, of, of traditions um, as a, a way of helping to define and bring together uh, a community. So uh, how special to have welcomed the very first students and to have been a part of defining traditions um, as a part of a um, an environment where tradition is among its most sacred virtues and values. So wonderful. Hey, if you hadn't worked in higher ed, if there had been another path, um, what might you have done? Well, you know, it's so hard to predict that. Um, but I can tell you as an undergraduate student, um, I always, you know, in Alaska, I had a very high interest in being in the energy sector. So there was oil and gas and and you know, utilities, basically. Yeah. Um, and that was you know part of the 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 big culture there, the pipeline culture and and the the big industries there at the time with BP and ConocoPhillips and Exxon. Um, those a lot of those experiences helped shape what what I was interested in because that's what I knew what was what was you know, present there where I could have a stable career. So that, those were my early inklings. Yeah. You know, the world has changed significantly since I was an undergraduate. So it's hard to know where my journey would have taken me had I not um, been in higher ed. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, wonderful. Um, you know, as a, a, a part of our wrap up, I have a little tradition of our own is that we like to invite our guests to reflect and think about your current leadership post and um, to give you a chance to say a little bit about San Jose State University and the, the distinctive qualities that drew you back to California and make it a special place to serve. So San Jose State University, in my view, is the original startup. We talk about that on our campus. It's the oldest university on the West. It's the founding university and the first university in the California State University system. And today, I think, is the epicenter of the future. The city of San Jose and San Jose State University are the epicenter of the future. The city of San Jose is the capital of Silicon Valley. Um, there is much that is happening there in which we can leverage our geography as we think about the future ahead, a very complicated future, as we all know. Um, there is incredible diversity uh, at San Jose State University. We have a, a large population of international students from all over the globe. We have students that come from all over California to earn a, a degree in areas that you might imagine, engineering, computer engineering, computer science, computational linguistics, a lot of new degrees that are being created to serve this technology need, the drive, the need, the entrepreneurial spirit that exists, the innovative spirit that exists in the Silicon Valley uh, is embedded within San Jose State University. San Jose State University is also one of the few universities, and, and there are others, we're not the only ones, that are a downtown urban mm -hmm. campus. So we're located in the heart of downtown. 
Um, we face many of the same opportunities and the energy that goes with being in a bustling downtown, as well as downtowns that are recovering, like ours in the tech community. We also have some of the same challenges uh, that social challenges, social issues that have that occur in downtown communities. And these have we have found ways to integrate that into our ecosystem around programs like our Come University program, Community, where we do experiential learning, community engagement, um, AI. Uh, we're all at the tip of this generation AI revolution. None of us know exactly where this is going to take us. We can't pinpoint exactly where large language models and artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, the various uh, definitions of artificial intelligence and where we'll be in 10 to 15 years in generative AI. But San Jose State University is the place to help create, define, and teach that. And those are some of the great aspects of what we're doing there. Um, we have these incredible internship programs for any major company that you can imagine in the Bay Area. We have one of we are one of the largest feeders for big names um, like Apple and Meta and Google and um, even now um, TikTok. Uh, the name of their parent company escapes me at the moment. Um, but they, there is so much that is going on in these sectors. So it's not just about computing. It's about arts and humanities and the digital frontier and where how it will spread into all of the disciplines. And our programs are very integral in making those things happen. And making them, not those things, those new concepts, these new interdisciplinary approaches, these new degrees that are putting people to work at the right place at the right time with the right talents. So there's, there's, uh, it's a great energy and a great spirit on the San Jose State University campuses. And those are some of the few things that are just stand out for me. We are you know, rising in the rankings. Uh, we're, we're moving into R2 status. Um, undergraduate research is really a critical core of who we are, which means many of our students are having these terrific undergraduate research experiences in the heart of Silicon Valley, yeah. truly working towards in incubation, uh, innovation, and this next generation of disruption that we were talking about earlier that we're living through right now. It's, it's a fascinating time. Um, it's a scary time. It, it's all of the energy of an uncharted future that permeates at San Jose State University. Yeah, I love hearing you speak about that um, um, intersectionality in all kinds of different dimensions for you um, within the educational and academic program, but also within the community that you live in and um and help lift um so um I, cynthia i want to just say thank you for joining us so grateful to you for all that you do and for the inspiration and example that you are and i just want to say thanks thank you jane thank you for inviting me it was a great conversation and um i look forward to seeing you soon we will look forward to seeing you soon and and again um, uh, every good wish to you and to all at San Jose State, truly um, a special institution. Um, I, yeah, and I thank you for the reminder, um, the oldest 
of the California State University system on campuses, the first in the West. And that's quite a point of distinction. So It, it is for us. Thank you. Listeners, we welcome your suggestions and thoughts for leaders we should feature in upcoming segments. You can send those suggestions to Leadership Podcast at academicsearch.org. You can find our podcast on the Academic Search website or wherever you find your podcasts. Leaders on Leadership is brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. Together, our mission is to support colleges and universities during times of transition and through leadership development activities that serve current and future generations of leaders in the academy. Today, it has been a special joy to host Cynthia Teniente Matson on our show. Thank you once again, Cynthia, for joining us, and to all have a good day. <music>